please open your Bibles to the book of Jude. We'll be going through some verses of Jude today. And I must say, even though we are going to be looking at individual verses very closely, I would describe this as really an overview of the book of Jude this morning. Okay. Father, thank you that you have displayed your glory, your divine power, and your perfection in your creation to begin with. And then, over time, you have displayed your glory and your justice and all your perfections in your word which you have given us that is here in front of us today. And I ask, Lord, once again that you would help me to speak it properly, Lord, accordingly, so that the hearts of the people may be turned to love and glorify and worship and adore Christ in all things. Amen. Now, Jude is a book that is often given less attention than many of our other letters. One reason might simply be it is at the end of the New Testament, just before Revelation. Or it could be because it has some rather unusual language in it, including Jude using several words from a non-canonical book to make his point. Or it might be because he speaks to just one primary concern being false teachers. One commentator's introduction starts his 350-page book off with this very first sentence. Jude is a book that has often been treated with benign neglect, rarely the text for a sermon. But Jude is similar to the book of Hebrews since it both warns and motivates us. It speaks about those who pervert the gospel and the resulting wrath of God and judgment to the disobedient. It is his call to arms for his faithful servants to defend the gospel. So I guess we can say Jude is something like a motivational speaker. And if his language is taken seriously to heart, we should be motivated to know our Bible thoroughly, be aware of those who oppose us and it, and be actively loving others who wander. This book, Jude, is like a crescendo of stark warnings and a red alert to the church about false teachers. An excellent comparison of some concentrated admonishments is Jesus in Matthew in his woe chapters. Woe to Pharisee. Woe to scribes. But this is about false teachers in the church. Woe to them. Many times Jesus, Paul, and Peter and others speak about false teachers in their midst. But Jude is like a loudspeaker to the church. He starts out saying briefly he wanted to write about pleasant things, but then immediately launches into a gushing denunciation of and a warning about false teachers. It's a bit like a news report of something gone terribly wrong and reads like a crime scene, calling everyone to gather around and be warned. There's a portion from verse 8 on. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, 
The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. You listen to all that and you might say, the world out there is a horrible, terrible place. But this is in the church. It's only a short letter, 23 verses before the doxology, but it uses these kind of words. Pervert, sensuality, destroyed, chains, gloomy darkness, judgment, condemnation, sexual immorality, unnatural desire, animal, shame, eternal fire, defile, blaspheme, devil, error, perished, rebellion, fruitless, gloom, utter darkness, ungodly, 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 ungodly. These are some of the words that Jude applies to these false teachers. So now if we start out at the beginning, in verses 1 and 2, this is how Jude begins. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude begins by telling us he is a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, and we understand that James he is speaking of is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a well-known leader in the church in Jerusalem. So, of course, this makes Jude also the half-brother of Jesus, but Jude does not refer to himself that way. And he is speaking to Christians in general here, as he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So this one sentence lays the foundation. He is speaking to those who are called, those who have received the unmerited, unearned mercy of God to be called to his son Jesus and believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins and all which true saving faith means. And he says they are kept for or by Jesus Christ. Now the word kept or keep is going to be used several times by Jude. And it speaks to God's divine sovereignty. He perfectly keeps his chosen ones in Christ. Like Jesus prays to the Father for his people. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And to protect his people, Jesus prays, keep them from the evil one. But God also keeps the false teachers for something, a very horrible end. And he will later say he wants us believers to do some keeping when he says we must keep ourselves in what he calls the love of God, meaning we've got things to do too. Then, moving on to the next verse, 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude starts off with the initially planned focus of his letter. The focus which ends up being just half a sentence before he completely changes directions to the rest of the letter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, that was plan A, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He goes right away to plan B. So his original eagerness to write about something which would probably be relatively pleasant is going to change drastically because he's got something he feels is much more urgent and pressing and this is to contend for the faith. And what is this faith? It is to contend for the true gospel. Like they said about Paul, he is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy preaching the gospel. A message of 
true facts demanding true faith, believing what is true about God to be saving faith. A faith which brings about repentance and what Paul calls the obedience of faith. A faith which comes about by believing certain truths about God and his son Jesus Christ. Things which are objectively true, which no false teacher can change, no matter how hard he may try, clever and subtle he may be, books he may write, or well-crafted sermons he may give. Note, this is different than how we might alternatively, but correctly, use the word faith. We would say, I know in my heart, I trust in Christ, I have faith. Jesus says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That is, his trusting belief in Christ by his born-again heart would not fail. So as we look at Jude's book, we must always stress faith is about a relationship with Jesus Christ, not just an understanding of facts about him. We must have a living trust in him as Savior and Lord. But if our facts about Jesus are incorrect, if the faith the gospel delivered to us is not properly understood or distorted, then our trust, our faith can be erroneous or misplaced and of no real value to us. Joe always uses the doctor analogy. If I need a cure to stay alive and the faithful reassuring doctor is coming to give me his saving shot of medicine, I rejoice and trust that I will be cured. But if what is in the syringe is the wrong medicine, I won't be cured. I'll perish. I've misplaced my trust. And for Jude here, these objectively true facts, which cannot be altered, have, as Jude says, been once for all delivered to the saints. This is one of those scriptures many people will place in the middle of a sentence when they speak of the finality of our scriptures that nothing can be added to or removed from them. And although when Jude wrote, there was obviously no final canon of scripture, as is now right here in front of us in our Bibles, hopefully, we understand it is a valid way to refer to the final canon of Scripture as we have it today. And if you'll notice the false teachers, there is often not a once for all, but an addition, a new revelation. Sects and cults are ripe with this. Mormons have the Book of Mormon. The recently deceased leader of the Worldwide Unification Church, Mr. Sun Moon, had his book of divine principles he said he got from Jesus. But for us, the true faith that was once for all delivered was revealed by God to the apostles and those close to them. So Paul declared when he was still alive, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he told the Romans their obedient hearts were due to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So Jude is going to guide us from understanding there is this faith once for all delivered to us saints and it is clearly of great value to contend for but it is threatened with heresy from within the church and if you are a genuine believer you must be part of this contending. And what is this contending like? Is it just about correcting false teachings and denouncing those who propagate it? There definitely is a place for that. When Paul details and refutes the problems in Galatians, he hints his opposition by saying, I wish they, those false teachers, would just emasculate themselves. But Jude, although he vividly tells of their terrible destiny, is not correcting the false doctrine brought by false teachers. Over here in Jude's letter, his focus is on what the false teachers look like in their lifestyle, not the specific theology of their erroneous teaching. Like Jesus warned, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jude tells us to expect them in the church, to recognize them, to be wary of them, and how the most severe judgment awaits them. And ultimately Jude is redemptive. Not just how to resist them, but to hold out hope to correct them and those who have been led astray. Now, we must stop and say, not every teacher who teaches something that you or I might call false is necessarily not a true believer. We humans can never know the true condition of someone's heart. 
But of course, we many times have seen apparently good teachers go off the rails. John says perfectly, eventually they went out from us, never having really been of us. And for Jude, these false teachers are definitely not true believers. Now, after he tells us he is going to appeal to us to contend for the faith, the truth of the gospel, he begins his uninterrupted description of the false teachers, and this really is the body of the letter and most of the book of Jude. And he has that one-sentence summary of them in verse 4. Again, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So there you have it. The primary characteristic of these false teachers. The main evidence and his focus on these ungodly people is in regards to their sensuality and ultimately their denying Christ. Jude will continue to point to these false teachers' lifestyle without details regarding their bad theology. They abuse God's grace and live in sensuality. Yes, their involvement in the church clearly leads to teaching error, but Jude says look mainly at the fruit of their lives to get good evidence. And not only do they pervert God's grace, but they deny Christ. But no, really, it is their conduct, he says, mainly reveals their denial. Like Paul says to Titus about deceivers. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. Paul confirms the same thing, looking at the fruit of a person's lifestyle. He is frequently saying, look at how I live, not in an arrogant way, but follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And reminds us believers how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Now, if they came into the church and the basis of their overt teaching were to deny Christ entirely, then they would not be people who have crept in unnoticed. And this is really a key point here. These false teachers have crept in unnoticed. They are described nicely by Peter. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. These are apparently nice church-going people who don't come in with a trumpet announcing their ungodly behavior and easy grace. They are attractive. They draw people to themselves. They do teach, and Jude says they creep in unnoticed. They are the ones Jesus was speaking of when he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Instead, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then Jude is going to remind us of what happens to people in general who reject God, even though they may have a good understanding of who he is. He gives three examples in verses 5 through 7. First, he goes to a frequent example of the Jews coming out of Egypt and the rebellion against God and the resulting death or outright destruction of a very large number of unbelievers. All this after God so miraculously saves and guides them. Then he speaks of rebellious angels and their condemnation. And thirdly, he uses Sodom and Gomorrah and their horrific judgment as what Jude calls an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And then he goes right on to say, in like manner, these people, meaning these false teachers, are also rejecting God in their own way and will also suffer the same fate. So who are these people, really? Well, this is what Jude calls them, these. After calling them certain people, he refers to them over and over again. These people, these people, these, these. He is not being specific. Judaizers? Gnostics? But certainly they are antinomians. My sins are forgiven by faith in Christ so I can proceed with my loose living. Obviously this is as prevalent in Christianity today as it was then. These people Jude is referring to, these false teachers, were characterized by their licentiousness, pride and greed, 
And this, of course, is what he keeps harping on. Their fruit, their behavior, their lifestyle. Look there. Again, he's not detailing their corrupt theology. So what are these false teachers like? One thing for sure, they hate the law. They hate what the law requires of them. Self-control. Delayed gratification. So Jude begins to describe them thoroughly in verse 8. They are dreamers. Sensual. Blasphemers. They reject authority. Now calling them dreamers, Jude must be saying these false teachers have some type of visions they heard from God. One can't help but think of the Mormons and Joseph Smith. Sorry, they make such a perfect example. Him and his visions of a speaking angel. Now really, talk of visions was more common in Jude's day in that non-materialistic only culture like we have today. Some proof? Well, what was the main defense of Paul's proclamation of Christ by even the Pharisees arguing with the Sadducees when Paul was brought before him? What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? And Paul warns Christians about those who go on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Sound like these false teachers in Jude? Yes. Now, false teachers today do not, at least not all of them, say they had a vision or a fresh word from the Lord. But we've got to realize when ingrained overt relativism is the core of the culture, the method of thought, then I don't need a new vision to bring in some false teaching. When you get to the point you can have a conversation with a college student and say, can we at least agree the sky is blue? And the answer is, well, blue for you, but maybe not for me. You know people can have a lot of trouble concluding what is objectively true. So one can just take what's clearly said and change and skew it to new meanings, which are then easily accepted by minds trained in relativism. True for you, not for me. And so, it is an easy leap to, did God really say? And Jude then says they blaspheme the glorious ones, meaning angels. Now that may seem a bit odd, but if we recall, angels were very involved in the giving of the law. Paul says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And Stephen's last words to those lawbreakers who were about to stone him, you received the law as delivered by angels. So for those who ignore the law in their immoral living, angels are not your friend. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but Jude goes on talking about blaspheming of angels. That should not be done. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So Jude is saying, Even the high-ranking angel Michael did not utter a judgment against another angel, Satan in this case, this is a pretty clear teaching we need not be rebuking Satan. Some will do that. Some will do that a lot. We know Jesus did, yes. We know Paul did it once to a demon possessing a servant girl. But this text seems pretty clear. If not even the archangel Michael, when state, Satan is standing right there, would rebuke that angel, then that leaves us out of the business too. Okay? <clears throat> Then Jude says something which really describes the way these false teachers are guided and really how sinful humans operate much of the time. In verse 10, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These false teachers do understand one thing perfectly, their instinct, and that guides them. Animals don't reason like humans do, they are unreasoning. Now it seems like we humans who know or claim to know God would do like Paul says, since you supposedly have been the recipient of God's mercy, you should offer your body as a living sacrifice, which is the acceptable or reasonable response in worship. But as James says, our instinct to evil temptations causes us to be lured away and enticed and proceed down the road of fresh fleshly instincts. 
So these false teachers who claim such wisdom, who have twisted the scriptures, who really don't know God, are actually just expressing the complete lack of faith and wisdom in being driven by their natural instincts to sensual indulgence. Seems okay. This is what my body likes, must be good. And by the way, churchgoer, if there's any problem with it, God forgives us anyway since we're in Christ. Then Jude refers to three specific persons who walked in wickedness and were judged for it. Previously, he referred to those three rebellious groups, the Israelites in the desert, the disobedient angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, but here it's three people, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And he uses the word woe to them. Cain, well, we kind of know about him. Balaam, he was first greedy for money to curse Israel, and then when that didn't succeed, he worked and succeeded to have the multitude of them tempted to sexual immorality with the Moabites. Thus Jude's connection to the false teachers he is pointing to, largely immoral and greedy, greedy for profit and followers. And Korah? Well, he basically had a cult of his own going in the desert. He had a large following. He challenged Moses, who clearly represented God and the law, and wanted to change what God had established. It's the same thing Paul said would happen. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that's what Jude is saying about these false teachers. Then Jude says something very interesting in verse 12. He says, they feast with you without fear. And this one shows the intimacy Jude says they can have in the church. The feast he is talking about is what Jude calls the love feast. And these are basically the common early Christian potluck, which consisted of actually eating a meal and at some point also apparently being a celebration of the Lord's Supper. In Corinth, they had these type of meetings, which involved eating, including the Lord's Supper, although they obviously had a lot of problems with order. But Jude says these false teachers could be right there with them, eating, fellowshipping, and celebrating the Lord's Supper. And of course, as people exercise their spiritual gifts, whatever their beliefs were, would be brought into the church. We see and we know that teaching was a part of the common meal associated with honoring the Lord. It was a communion service of that time. For example, about Paul. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day and prolonged his speech until midnight. <clears throat> and you thought Joe's sermons were long. Okay. So these people are embedded in the church eating with true believers. Now why do these people stay in the church? Why not just go into the world and live without the restraints of some religion? Well, not every false teacher exhibits all the traits Jude refers to, but he points to their having an opportunity for leadership, money, pride and fame, controlling people. Recall Paul had a rather shocking list of how severe the interaction with these false teachers in the church could be. He told the Corinthians, before you bear it, if someone makes slaves of you or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. We should say, however, there are many rather ordinary, low-key false teachers as well. And being in the church justifies their sensuality. They can, as we mentioned, keep thinking they are under God's grace. He's forgiven them. Or just change or ignore the clear teachings themselves. And doesn't that work pretty well? If you tone down the scriptures and just talk about God's love for all of us and his desire for you to have a better life, that seems to draw people's itching ears to hear some more. And the teacher can achieve all those things I mentioned and perhaps the teacher himself can feel comfortable with the diseased fruit he is bearing. And now when we get to verse 17, we turn the corner. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to make some summary statements and then he is going to give us some direction about what to do. Jude has been saying these, 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 referring to the false teacher, and now he is saying you, 
meaning you, as in you and me. He starts by saying the apostles predicted this very thing. In verse 18, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So Jude's near the end of the Bible, just before Revelation. But of course, this doesn't mean we finally get to the serious warnings about false teachers. There are plenty of warnings about false teachers everywhere. Jesus, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Paul, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in you, among you not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. And as we read, Peter says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And Paul again, very nicely. In latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, how much later times? Well, pretty much immediately. And what is the result of this false teaching? A drumbeat of its impact throughout the New Testament. Wrong teaching such as legalistic Judaizers like Galatians is mostly about. And here in Jude, the other extreme. We're forgiven through Christ. Let's take in the world and live to the fullest. And so many other warnings about false teachers within the early church. 1 Corinthians. Arrogant teachers in celebrating sexual sin. 2 Corinthians. Paul is not the real apostle. We here are super apostles. Galatians. Well, I think we know that one pretty much by now. Ephesians. Let no one deceive you with empty words about immorality. Philippians. Watch out for those dogs who teach circumcision and also those for whom their God is their stomach and their glory and their shame. Colossians. Teachers of hollow philosophies and angel worship and asceticism. 1 Thessalonians, Christ is coming soon, so maybe just sit and wait. 2 Thessalonians, even more confusion by false teachers about Christ's return. 1 Timothy, false teachers promoting arrogance and greed. 2 Timothy, after I die, Paul says, those who abuse grace will come in. Titus, you must silence the false teachers of the circumcision party. 1 John, even now, many antichrists have come and then gone out from us. And Second John, many deceivers have gone out. Such is an antichrist. And then, how about those specific churches in Revelation John was writing to at the end of the first century? How is it going over in Ephesus? You've tested those who claim to be apostles and found them to be false. And so good, you got rid of them. And Pergamum? You've got teachers there teaching like Balaam. Balaam. He's one of the main condemnees of Jude, an example of someone who worked to entice others into extensive sexual sin. And by the way, you've got those Nicolaitans who love the easy grace, I'm forgiven, let's sin type theology. Over in Thyatira, you guys are tolerating Jezebel, who teaches and seduces the people to practice sexual immorality. How about Philadelphia? You've got false supposed Jews there who are actually of the synagogue of Satan. So when these multiple warnings about the error and false teachings in the churches were given, the latter times, the last times Jude and Paul had spoken of did begin right away. So then, in verse 19, Jude gives us the summary. It is these who cause divisions... Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They create a deceived group within the church, drawing people away to their own thinking, that's divisions, and they live immorally, that's their worldliness, and they are devoid of the Spirit. And the ease with which divisions arise is well known to Paul. In Corinth he battles even believers who divide by saying they follow various teachers rather than saying, I follow Christ. And of course, John says very nicely, they were here with us, but they went out from us because they were never really of us. Then when Jude ends his description of these false teachers, just as he turns to us believers telling us how to respond, he ends with the final words, devoid of the Spirit. So there is the bottom line. 
These false teachers in Jude's case appear to be rather charismatic or attractive, persuasive or impressive. And so Jude uses such intense persuasive language about these teachers. Waterless clouds, fruitless trees, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves foaming up shame, wandering stars destined for the gloom of utter darkness forever. But ultimately they are devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit in them. They have not really believed the gospel in a saving way. They have not been born again, born of the Spirit, born from above. On their inside, they have their mind set on the flesh and are hostile to God. They simply cannot submit to God's law. They do not belong to Christ. So they follow merely natural instincts. So, of course, what they don't like about God's law, those parts directly about licentiousness, they reject. They adjust them. They water them down. And just to top it off, they stay in the church, surely partly because they want that forgiveness of whatever sins they do think are real, that forgiveness they desire which they believe is offered in Christ. So they are deceived into thinking they are covered either way. You can reject or adjust parts of the moral laws of God, so one thinks they are not sinning. And whatever is sin, well, they say it's covered by believing in Christ. So as to the who, what, when, where, and how of these false teachers, who scoffers at God's law? What? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. When? The last times, meaning right now. Where? Everywhere in the church. Why? It's the instinctive human sinful nature rising up in certain teachers. How? Because people either have itching ears, which want to hear some new adjusted moral teaching, or they just simply don't know their Bible. And this turns to Jude's instructions to us believers about what to do about all this. I guess we might call it his application. And his instructions aren't focused on ridding the church of these false teachers. He doesn't say to carefully counter their heresy. There is certainly the need for those things. But Jude directs us towards other critical words which are part of dealing with false teachers. He starts out in verse 20, But you, beloved. That's how he started out the letter, speaking to us. Beloved. Jude says, do this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So Jude says you must build yourself up in your most holy faith. Obviously, this means you must be familiar with this most holy faith so that you can be part of the building up. And it starts, of course, in knowing and properly interpreting and understanding the Scriptures. Because as with the beginning of Jude, where he says, we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, meaning the Gospel itself, here it is the same thing. It's properly knowing biblical doctrine. If we don't know our doctrine, then we cannot be Bereans and do like they did to Paul. Examine the Scriptures every day, to see if what Paul said was true. To see if what I am saying is true. To see if what Joe or Sergio are saying is true. Like Joe has said many times, make sure yourself what I am teaching you is true. But building up in our most holy faith is much more than that in this short verse. Build yourself up. This points to a common metaphor throughout the New Testament speaking of the body of Christ, the church, the community of believers. Building. A group of people coming together who know, properly understand, and interpret the teachings of God, walk in obedience to those teachings, and desire to build the church for the glory of Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built... Up as a spiritual house, says Peter. Paul says, you are citizens of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We could go on and on with these examples, but you get the idea. This is how Jude is saying we deal with the false teachers. We are certain of the true gospel and live by it, speak it, model it, not waver from it. And when people like that come together and work together, we are, like Jude says, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. So our individual knowledge of and obedience to the gospel is not the final end, but also a means to the end of coming into community to love each other and love the world for Christ. The false teachers are leading individuals one by one into error and thus poisoning the whole body of Christ. So we too must be individually of sound doctrine to build this body, sustain this body, protect this body which Christ is building using us to glorify Him. That's how we poke those false teachers in the eye. And more. Jude says, Praying in the Holy Spirit. Do that as well. That's not something the false teachers can do because they are devoid of the Spirit. Even though they may say they've prayed and heard from God by a revelation or a word, the only Spirit that may have been speaking to them or they may have heard is the kind which go into pigs and rush down the hill into the lake. But for us believers... Paul describes our daily praying very simply. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And of course, sometimes it's like this. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. And in all this we are to do, Jude adds, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now Jude started out saying we are kept by Jesus Christ. That's God's doing. But here he is saying you do something. You keep yourself in the love of God. Jesus says the same thing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. And then adds, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is not what the false teachers are doing. They are not keeping his commands. So they will not abide in his love. Even though they may be thinking they are, as Jude says, in the love of God. And they are waiting for the mercy of Christ that leads to eternal life. They are mistaken. They are not in the love of God. And they will have no mercy leading to eternal life. But rather the gloom of utter darkness, Jude says, is reserved for them. Now many times when we look back at what a Holy Spirit-inspired writer has commanded, there is a common pattern. Just like here in Jude. Along with blessings, praises, and warnings, there are directions like Jude has for us. Build yourself up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And as we've just seen, this is referring basically to the means of grace God has given to us. Namely, read and know your Bible, pray and draw near to God by the Holy Spirit, and be in community, be dedicated to a church. Jude has gone on in vivid detail about the false teacher, but finally tells us what to do. The Word of God, praying in the Spirit, and the church body. Short list, seems clear, but of course, for some, not always easy. But here's the reason these directions to us appear over and over again in the Scriptures. First, we've got Jesus Christ as our sure foundation. Got to have that. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. With that foundation, there are then two ways to build. If we don't build always relying on those means of grace, the short list of the Word, prayer and intimacy with the Holy Spirit, and being strongly and tightly committed to the community of believers then we have a good chance of building a house on the sand. In my business, when we see a building like that, after we have thoroughly looked it over, we have a technical word for it. We call it a dump. <laughs> if we build incorrectly, 
then false teaching can take root and we can build a house of cards. So it is critical to us to have this well-built building and to stand firmly against false teachings and this is why Jude makes these commands very clear. And this leads to a second and very important part to what Jude is commanding us to do in response to the false teachers. It is reaching out to those who have been led astray by false teaching. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is what building up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, and keeping yourself in the love of God is preparing you for. Your foundation to help, in this case, the victims of false teachers, and we can say possibly even a correctable false teacher himself. And there is a progression here from doubters to those at the edge of the fire, and then finally to those who are fully engulfed in false teaching and to whom your mercy must be fixed mixed with some fear. Jude saying, go out and save the sheep. Don't always attack the wolves. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. By destroying arguments and things raised against the proper knowledge of God. We've got to take what we've learned here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship Pastors sometimes brain-straining on wavering exposition of this Bible and use what is then hopefully a very finely sharpened sword of the Spirit we've been blessed with. Then perhaps what Jesus said might apply to us. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Then we will fully recognize the counterfeit, the false teachings. Then we can do what Paul said to do. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then we can do what James says to do as he ends his letter. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Now when we read through the Bible with the thought of false teachers and our mind, we might be surprised it is everywhere, all over the New Testament, like we've seen this morning. That's why Jude was going to write about our common salvation, but instead sounded the alarm about false teachers. The flesh of men and the devil are working constantly, daily, to twist and water down and adjust and change the Scriptures. And it should be apparent to us what the result is as we turn into 2016. There is nothing new under the sun. The church has in many ways been unable to withstand the massive onslaught of false teaching and has succumbed, is badly weakened. And the culture is, can we say, a lot like Jude's garment stained by the flesh. The culture is obviously a reflection of that. But I took heart in what I read the other day in a blog. A man who saw even though there is severe moral decay evermore surrounding us, we can take heart by praying and trusting in the Lord. This is what he wrote. I love to see in God's people a serious concern for the moral decay all around us. Many of our prayers we say with tears and grief because of the moral decline of our culture. The increase in sexual sin, increase in drug and alcohol use, it seems like our once great nation is on the same path as Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's pray God will have mercy. That is a realistic outlook depending upon God. But you see, that was not a modern blog at all. Forgive me, but to make the point, I simply took what the great Protestant Preacher Charles Spurgeon said about the culture of London, England in 1887 and modernized the language. This is what he actually said. I love to see in God's people a holy horror of the sin which surrounds them. 
in several of the prayers in which we joined before we came upstairs to this service, there were many tears and cries over the wickedness of our streets, the impurity and the drunkenness which defiles so many all around us. Alas, alas, men seem bent on horrible iniquity. And it looks as if London, that's 1887 London, it looks as if London, this great modern Babylon, will repeat the story of the cities of the plain. Well, may we pray, O oh Lord, have mercy upon the people. So from this can we be encouraged our battle today has been waged by all generations of believers who came before us. Can we say again there is nothing new under the sun? We must always contend against false teaching. We must fight constantly to know and deliver the truth of God's word to all the world around us. But we can expect it will be in the midst of a culture which mostly rejects him and fully reflects the results of that rejection even as in the first century church, a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. We are in a battle for the souls of men and women everywhere and by extension the very soul of our church and our culture. So here's our New Year's resolution. Let's contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's do like Paul said, so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Father, we thank you so much that you have delivered to us once for all, this word and Lord, we know that it is true from Genesis to Revelation, every word of it, telling us about the greatness of God, the love of Christ, pointing to the cross, pointing to your death on our behalf, taking the wrath of the Father upon his own Son for our sake, that we could believe these true things and have true saving faith to know and love Christ himself. So fill our hearts. Fill our hearts with the desire for Christ. Fill our hearts with the desire to know and love this word so that we may stand firm in the truth. That we may not be swayed by false teachings. That we may know the truth that you are the Savior you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.